Right, uh, good evening everybody. Welcome to the LSE and uh, welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy event on Philosophical Biography and Autobiographical Philosophy. I'm Simon Dendling, I'm the Director of the Forum and I'm delighted to have with us tonight uh, two people who have put their minds to at least one of the themes that uh, we're going to be talking about because we have two and so it's going to be a bit of a game of two halves. Um, in the first part, which will be focusing our attention primarily on Ray Monk, who's over on the other side, uh, we'll be talking about um, writing biographies of philosophers. And so that idea of um, uh, an engagement with the life of somebody whose life has been in some way bound up with the work of, of philosophy. Ray, of course, has done this twice. Uh, with Wittgenstein and with Russell, and has recently moved away from uh, the life of a philosopher to do the life of a scientist with Oppenheimer. Um, and it will be interesting to see as well whether he's found any significant differences between what it is to write the life of a philosopher and the life of a non-philosopher and a scientist. And then in our, as our second half, we're going to turn perhaps something that uh, at least Ray and I find more difficult, and we'll see if Stephen, Stephen finds it uh, something comfortable to think about, which is, is the relationship between philosophy and autobiography, and whether those are, as it were, two completely and perhaps radically separate um, enterprises. If, in what sense, if any, would be working in philosophy be something related in any way at all to, to something that we might think of as autobiography. That's a, a trickier relation. We'll try to segue through them. We've got um, about uh, 55 minutes to talk with um, uh, Ray and Stephen on, on those two topics. And then we'll have an opportunity for you to ask questions and make contributions yourself at the end. Um, I'm going to sit with them so that they don't feel too lonely. Uh, and I'm going to ask the first question as well. So thinking about our first half, then, on um, starting off at least with biographies of philosophers, Ray Monk, uh, you were pursuing in certain way an the, the career trajectory of an ordinary philosopher, as it were, and, and at some point you must have thought, I'm going to write a biography about Wittgenstein instead of writing, as it were, standard academic readings and exegesis and so on. Um, why did a philosopher, how did a philosopher uh, end up writing a biography? Right, okay. So, uh, to pursue a bit of autobiography, um, my graduate work was actually in the philosophy of mathematics, which you might think is as far removed from biography as it's possible to be. <clears throat> and the way I got from there to biography was this. I was writing a dissertation on Wittgenstein's philosophy of mathematics and studying the secondary literature. And it struck me that most of the secondary literature about Wittgenstein's philosophy of mathematics, no matter how sophisticated or interesting it was, most of it failed to grasp Wittgenstein's meaning, it seemed to me, 
in a particular kind of way. That's just, and, and now, I'm, so to name names, I'm talking about Michael Dummett's reading of Wittgenstein's philosophy of mathematics and Crispin Wright's, both of which were very interesting, but it seemed to me that both of them misunderstood Wittgenstein and the way they'd misunderstood Wittgenstein, it seemed to me, was they'd misunderstood him. Um, or to put it another way, they'd misunderstood what you might call the spirit in which he wrote. And it seemed to me that Wittgenstein himself was very concerned with this issue of the spirit in which he wrote. And it, it occurred to me that one way, not the only way, but one way of getting across the spirit in which Wittgenstein wrote was to try and give some understanding of him, of his personality, of what interested him, of what motivated him, of his, as it were, spiritual concerns. The history of this, I think, uh, goes back to his first work, his earliest work, the, the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus. He felt, I think, that that book had been misunderstood and that the misunderstanding was at heart a question of misunderstanding the spirit in which he wrote. And this centers, I think, on um, the divergent understandings of the anti-metaphysical part of the Tractatus between Wittgenstein and the Vienna Circle. The Vienna Circle, like Wittgenstein, believe that most of what is traditionally described as metaphysics quite literally has no meaning. But the difference between the two is summed up by Otto Neurath, one of the, one of the members of the Vienna Circle, who, who had his own gloss on Wittgenstein's famous last sentence of the book, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. Otto Neurath said, one must indeed be silent, but not about anything. And I think that uh, captures the difference between the, Wittgenstein's spirit in which you know, uh, he, he uh, um, encouraged a silence and the Vienna Circle's attitude to the same thing which is to dismiss it as, as, as nonsense Well let's, let's hold on to that thought then of, uh, of a spirit of the work which unless you enter into that mm. the, the work is going to remain inaccessible or mis misunderstood by yeah. you wouldn't it be beholden on a philosopher to say something about that themselves, why, why, why leave it out? Um, when you look at the prefaces that Wittgenstein wrote, to, I mean, as, as most of you will know, throughout the 30s and 40s, Wittgenstein tried to get the various remarks that he'd written into some sort of publishable form, and at various times he wrote a preface to what was intended to be his book. And most of these draft prefaces actually do try to specify the spirit in which he's writing. So he, in, in, in one that he wrote in the 30s, he says the spirit in which he's writing is quite different from the spirit which informs our times. And he says that spirit is the scientific spirit. It wants to move onwards and upwards and so on, whereas he wants to stay in the same place and just, as it were, get a clear review. Uh, of, so he's, he's, he's trying in those prefaces to to direct the reader, as it were. And um, another, another attempt that he made was to say, I should like to say about this work that it's written to the glory of God. He says, but these days that wouldn't be understood. So he, he, he did so, make... So then why... Do, do you think he just didn't come up with a version of the prefaces that he was happy with? Or do you think he kind of decided in principle against having that kind of prefatory... No, I don't, I don't think he decided... I mean, actually, the final preface, the one that's published with the book, does, you know, make some sort of attempt along those lines. He, mm. he says, you know, this book is an album, it's coming, at, at, you know, at, from different parts, and it's sort of 
doing a little sketch here and a little sketch there. And he's, he's trying to characterise the way in which he's thinking so as to, to, to be read uh, correctly. But it's a very difficult thing, I think. I, I mean, he, you know, he, he said it, 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 if somebody... He, he said about philosophy that, that um, he, he could only really philosophise with somebody with whom he could hold hands. <laughs> there's, a, there's a kind of sympathy required so as not to feel that you're constantly being misinterpreted or interpreted uncharitably or, or whatever it might be, that you, you, you feel some kind of sympathy. He even described it one time as a kind of an erotic sympathy, but you, you need some kind of empathy, some sort of connection. And it's, if you publish something, it's then very difficult, I think, or maybe impossible, to then establish that kind of communication that's ideal. Well, let's push you on this further then. There's at least two further steps. One, one is to say, OK, so we need to get some appropriate orientation into the spirit of the work to, mm. uh, to understand it properly. Um, do you have to know what school you went to? Do you, do you need to know any, I mean, what sort of biographical... I mean, you don't you need to know anything. It's a long book. Right, you don't need to know anything, it seems to me. I, I mean, um, it's just that people were misreading the Tractatus and then the later work in a way that was, you know, that, that might be... One, one, way, one thing that might be helpful to correct that misreading is, is to, to give some understanding of, of what kind of person he was and what interested him and what his aspirations were. But none of that's necessary. I mean, there, there were people who were sensitive to the way he wrote. I mean, I think one thing that strikes anybody when they first read Wittgenstein is the style in which he writes. You know, it's so different from the style of most philosophers, particularly most analytic philosophers. You, you know, you've only got to read a few paragraphs of philosophical investigations and, you know, it's not Bertrand Russell, it's not Quine, it's not Alonzo Church. You know, this is, this is a very different way of writing philosophy, full of literary devices, full of allusions, full of rhetorical questions and so on. And there were people, without knowing anything at all about Wittgenstein, who, just by reading the text, because they were sensitive to and sympathetic with the way in which it was written, they, they, they could sense, as it were, uh, what kind of person he was. So it, it's not as if any no biographical information is necessary uh, but some of it is helpful, even maybe where he went to school. Yeah, and what, what do you think you learned about him in pursuing a genuinely extended biography? Well, I, a, a big moment for me was understanding why, or feeling as if I understood why Weininger was so important to him. Tell us uh, about Weininger. Weininger, okay, Otto Weininger wrote this crazy book, Sex and Character, in which he put forward the following line, that it's an obligation for all of us men to fulfil the genius, whatever capacity for genius that we have. Now, women don't count because women don't have any capacity for genius, and neither do Jews, because according to Weininger, Jews are actually a kind of woman. And it's an absolutely mad book. And Wittgenstein recommended this book, bizarrely, to his friends in the 1930s, and they read it and thought it was crazy. Uh, because it is. Um, and when I was reading this book, I was trying to understand why Wittgenstein might have, uh, might have admired it. And I don't think it's got anything to do with... He also thought that you know, homosexuals couldn't possibly be, 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 be geniuses. Uh, homosexuals are in the same category as women and Jews and, and, and so on. So large parts of the substance of the book are just mad. But there's one theme in the book that I think does resonate with Wittgenstein, and I think is a kind of key to understanding his personality, which is Weininger says, 
logic and ethics are two parts of the same duty. And this is why I called my book The Duty of Genius, because it seemed to me, if you're trying to understand, on the one hand, Wittgenstein's determination to think as clearly as possible, and on the other hand, his determination to be as morally decent in his terms as he could possibly be, that, it seems to me, is, is to understand the connection between his life and his philosophy. So that's the connection then also between his life and his writing. But the second step here, which is probably the toughest one, would be that all of this is about, as it were, the sources or origins and the background of its production, and that ultimately for the philosopher what counts are things like validity and uh, argumentative rigour and yeah. correctness and truth and so yeah. on, which uh, those things which, while they may be interesting, yeah. one might think are utterly irrelevant yeah. in the end. Yeah, okay. So, uh, I mean, as we all know, a lot of philosophers are very hostile to the idea that biography has got anything to do with understanding uh, uh, a, a philosopher's work for a very good reason, which is that, you know, we all, always tell our students, look, what we're interested in here is arguments, and we're interested in valid arguments, and whether an argument is valid or not cannot possibly depend upon who is putting it forward, where they went to school, what biographical facts uh, 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 pertain to that person, and so on. All of that is perfectly true, but I think not many of us believe that philosophy really consists entirely of you know, arguments, valid or otherwise. And certainly Wittgenstein's work doesn't. Um, it contains all these other things too uh, that I mentioned before, the allusions, the rhetorical questions, the ironical statements, the, the pithy epi epigrams and so on. These are all part of Wittgenstein's toolbox, as it were, as a, as a philosophical writer. Um, there are arguments in Wittgenstein's work, to be sure, and you know, it's important to establish whether those arguments are valid or not. But a, the question of understanding Wittgenstein's work does not end when you've been through his arguments and determined whether they're valid or not. Okay, before we move on to either the other people, of Russell or, or Oppenheimer, um, I want to raise a little bit of a problem about biography as a genre itself. So there's the question of whether any way of accessing a work that comes from in some way outside the work has, it, has something to offer. But then some people might think that there's something particularly problematic about a biographical routine, perhaps because of the kind of conception of what it is to be an individual that might be thought to embody it. They say there might be people who think that you're missing out on, on dimensions of our own locatedness in history, things which are outside your own subjectivity, as it were, which aren't transparent to you as an author of your own work. You could have people who think, you know, the right external access might be psychoanalytic or historical or uh, some sort of class analysis, all sorts of, of, of things. That, uh, when you ask yourself, I've got to get some external, or when you've said to yourself you want to get some kind of outside the work um, entry into it, why biography? Well, biography is not separate from all the things that you've mentioned. Um, every person who's ever written a biography also does history. You know, I mean, I couldn't write a biography of Wittgenstein without studying the history of Vienna. I couldn't write a biography of Oppenheimer without studying the history of Jewish migration into the United States. So 
history and biography go together, and so do a lot of the other things that you mentioned. So a biography is not purely, as it were, internal. A biography does look at context, historical background, political background, cultural background, family background. All these things are part of uh, a a biography. So um, the idea that one can situate an individual is not inconsistent with or even intention with biography. Well, let's turn to uh, the, the, the next one that you looked at, which, in, in some, which is Bertrand Russell, because there I think your own motivation is quite different. I mean, I, I, perhaps you could tell us a bit how you landed with Russell, um, but I, I've always had the feeling with Wittgenstein there was a, a, a genuine, passionate interest in the work and perhaps even some, something like a love of the work, mm-hmm. uh, and that it was allowing us to get closer to that yeah. that was the, the motivation for doing biography. What about Russell? That's like, right. Like him? Well, the Russell book came out of a fascination with Russell, which was allied to Wittgenstein because Wittgenstein had been Russell's student at Cambridge. And actually before my interest in Wittgenstein, I'd, I'd, you know, as, as, as a young boy I'd been interested in Russell uh, politically because of his involvement in the campaign for nuclear disarmament. And so you know, I had, I had that connection with Russell. But when I was working on Wittgenstein, I just got more and more interested in Bertrand Russell and in his work, actually. I mean, his, um, I became more and more interested in his early work, particularly uh, uh, prior to uh, Principia Mathematica, uh, his attempt to understand mathematics as logic. And the, I mean, people forget, people think of Russell now as the ironic, you know, detached figure that he became in the 50s and 60s. But in the first two, in the first decade of this, uh, of the 20th century, um, he was as passionate in his own way in understanding mathematics and logic as, as Wittgenstein was. And actually when Wittgenstein came to Cambridge in 1911, probably no other university in the world would have taken him on in the way that Cambridge did. And the reason Cambridge did was because Russell saw in Wittgenstein a kindred spirit. And so we tend now to concentrate on the differences, the contrast between Russell and Wittgenstein. But actually what, what drew me into Russell were the similarities, funnily enough, to do with the passion for understanding, the passion for clarity. Right. Can I, I mean, someone, someone might think that in the case of Wittgenstein, the, the sort of line you're, you're taking, that one needs to understand the spirit of the work... I don't well. say one needs to. Well, well... Not that one needs to understand that spirit biographically. Right, okay, yes. understand yes, the spirit okay. of the work, and the sure. biography is one way of doing sure, that. Definitely. In a certain sense, that was a view that Wittgenstein himself would have kind of happily yeah. endorsed. Yeah. You know, yeah. logic and sin, yeah. they're the same thing, yeah. in effect. Um, Russell, you might have thought, would be someone who, not, not in every mood, perhaps, but in a lot of his moods, would have denied well, that there was any. Well, in the first decade of the 20th century, not so much. I mean, Russell wrote then about, <coughs> about passion and about, he, he wrote an essay called Logic and Mysticism, where he, 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 uh, he, he, he draws a connection between the, the, <coughs> uh, the, 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 the ideal of the mystic and the ideal of the logic. And he, uh, he, he wrote uh, at length to his lover, Ottilie, about his own passion and about you know, trying to understand his interest in logic and mathematics 
biographically. He was inclined to, you know, and he did this in My Philosophical Development and also in the first volume of his autobiography. He tried to get clear about uh, why he was so interested in mathematics and logic, and he did so in, 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 in biographical terms. But he didn't stick with that as a, as a kind of... Would you say that was a central defining aspect of his perspective on life or his perspective on philosophy? Yeah, actually, I would. I mean, when he wrote History of Western Philosophy, um, he always begins with some biographical remarks about the... Philo you know, each chapter is devoted to a philosopher and each chapter begins with some biography. I don't think... I, I don't think Russell was one to separate um, life from work, actually. And if you had a philosopher who was, that wouldn't necessarily mean that biography was any less useful. Well, I don't know. It, I, I think the usefulness of biography would, you know, I don't think it's a constant. I think it, it varies from case to case. I mean, it's hard to imagine a biography of Kurt Gödel mm -hmm. shedding much light on the incompleteness theorem, you know. Uh, um, uh, and, and, you know, so I think, I think it does vary. And, 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 and uh, some philosophers lend themselves more to biographical treatments than others. There have been several attempts to write a good biography of Kant, and I haven't seen a successful one yet. <laughs> there, there, there's something that I, I uh, mentioned in the blurb for this event, which is a quite famous line from Heidegger when he was giving lectures on Aristotle. Mm -hmm. quite famous. I'm actually not exactly sure of the translation because it seems to be given... Is given the, yes, I know, but the, the, the line from Heidegger seems to be variously reported. But it was something like uh, Aristotle, yes, he, uh, he was born, he worked, he died. Yeah. Uh, or he, he was born, he thought, he died. Yeah. And, and the, any other kind of... I mean, th that is just saying that stuff, that little biographical detail is nothing, absolutely nothing, Mm. about engaging with the thought. Yeah. So here's another way. This isn't about what really matters is validity or mm. you know, logical consistency yeah. or other sorts of um, um, test, tests of the worth of a, of a text. But here, here's somebody saying that when it comes to getting inside the philosophy, you have to stay with the philosophy. Yeah, I, I mean, as I say, I think my view is that it varies from philosopher to philosopher, but I think with some philosophers, to get inside the philosophy and to get inside the philosopher are the same thing, or if not the same thing, closely allied. Right. Okay, then let's turn to a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you've, you've then written two large biographies of major philosophers, um, and in both cases, you could run at least parallel arguments about the worth of that. Yeah. And somehow you get led into Oppenheimer. <laughs> tell, us, tell us how that came about. Well, the origin of that was um, I was asked by the Observer newspaper to review a collection of Oppenheimer's correspondence. And until then, I knew about Oppenheimer, just what everybody knows about Oppenheimer, that he led the Los Alamos laboratory and that he had his security clearance taken away from him in the 50s. I didn't know that he, you know, was an expert on French literature. I didn't know that he taught himself Sanskrit in order to read the Hindu classics in their original language. He was a much more multifaceted and a much more interesting um, <coughs> uh, yeah, person than I, than, than I thought. And, you know, 
uh, and I said in this review of this correspondence, it's a really interesting biography to be written of Oppenheimer. Now, you raised before the question of, well, okay, so you're moving from biographies of philosophers to a biography of a scientist, and, you know, that sounds very different. But actually, the motivation isn't so different, really, because what I'm trying to understand with Oppenheimer is, so to speak, his mental life. And this, this does include theoretical physics, to be sure, but it also includes a whole bunch of other things, too. His interest in Hinduism, his interest in poetry, uh, literature, philosophy. Um, so it, it, what interested me about Oppenheimer is, is more allied to what interest, interested me about Wittgenstein and Russell than you might think, in the sense that you know, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to understanding, as it were, the mental life of this man. And uh, did he grip you as a philosopher? Though? Well, as, 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 a philosopher? As, a, as a thinker, as a thinker. I, I mean... No, were, were you as a bio... When, when you were a bio... When you wrote biographies of philosophers... Yeah. Were you a philosopher writing a biography of philosophers? Well, s somebody trying to understand their thought. Yeah, somebody trying to understand Wittgenstein's thought, Russell's thought, and in the case of Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer's thought. Um, because Oppenheimer's physics was part of, you know, his intellectual life, his thinking. Um, and again, it, you know... How interesting a biography of a physicist would be, I think, would vary from case to case, but I think Oppenheimer is surely one of the most interesting. Okay, well, I'm pushing you here. Is there something about you being a philosopher that would make your take on Oppenheimer distinctive, and perhaps different than the sort of approach that might be from somebody else who has an interest in the mental life of Oppenheimer? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, maybe a bit more... Um, I, you know, I'd be inclined to linger more on uh, the intellectual parts of his life. Um, maybe that's right. But, that, I mean, you know, you don't have to be a philosopher to be interested in somebody's uh, intellectual life. So, okay, then, were you, are you a philosopher when you're doing these works of biography, in any of them? First and foremost, I'd say a biographer, which means somebody trying to understand another person. But... You know, these aren't biographers of generals or of, you know, boxers. You know, these are biographers of thinkers. So, yes, I'm first and foremost a biographer trying to understand another human being, but another human being whose life is, to an unusual extent, driven by intellectual uh, concerns. Can I, so, do you, you obviously see a continuity between the very idea of understanding another person and the project of running a biography mm. Do you, do you have a clear sense of what the specific differences are? And what specific obstacles or difficulties or specific opportunities that you get in understanding another person if you approach them as a biographer? Because you know, I was reading on the train coming down an essay you wrote quite a while ago about, primarily at that point, about the, the Wittgenstein. But yeah. Russell was kind of halfway through at that point. And you were... You were you were pointing out and making clear the ways in which the kind of understanding of Wittgenstein that you wanted your biography of him to convey yeah. was, was a kind of Wittgensteinian yeah. conception of what's involved in understanding yeah. another person. That's right. And so yeah. a further kind of marriage between yeah. former content. Yeah. Um, yeah. But are there also kind of specific differences between, you know, trying specifically as a biographer to understand a particular other person 
and just the sort of general field of understanding other people that Wittgenstein himself kind of wrote about. That's an interesting question, and and I'm, it, it's a question that hasn't occurred to me bizarrely, but, but it is a very it is a very interesting one. Okay, we're going uh, to push you then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so, so good. Um, and what I'd say about that is, I'm not sure that there's any difference really between trying to understand somebody, you know, outside a biography and trying to understand them as a biographer. But as a biography, you've got an additional task, which is to practice, as it were, an art or at least a craft, which is the writing of a book. So you're not just trying to understand somebody, you're then trying to convey that understanding in, 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 in terms of... And, and, and now you're onto a slightly different territory. You, you're, you're, so what's required for a biographer is not just to understand a human, uh, another human being, but to write well. So a really great biography like Richard Elman on Oscar Wilde, it's not just that Elman is sympathetic <coughs> to Wilde's literature, to his poetry, his, his work, or his personality. That's, that's surely part of it. But it also, it's that Elman is a master of the art of biography. So the biographer has got a job to do over and above the understanding. Okay, I'd like to know more about this. First of all, if you were giving a lecture to uh, your students in Southampton about Wittgenstein's views on understanding other minds, yeah. um, would you say at any point, and what we're doing here is something like what a biographer does? Or, or do you, do you I might do, or I might do, I, I might say, you know, it's, it's when Wittgenstein talks of the understanding that consists in, in seeing connections or at the end of investigations where he's, he, he raises the question, you know, is there such a thing as expert judgment with regard to the genuineness or, or otherwise of, of, of feelings? Well, that's a real question for all of us. I mean, it's a, it's a you know, pertinent question for a biographer, but it's also to do with how will you understand your friends or your, 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 your partners, your, your children, your parents. You know... Uh, the question of what it is to understand a person, it's not, it, it, it's, it's, of course it's relevant to biography, it's relevant to a philosopher, but it's, it's you know. But what about, oh, sorry, to one more on this. Well, what about the, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'd invite the same with Russell. Russell, it seemed to me, was, from my point of view, rather confused about issues around other minds. He, was, he, he certainly wasn't as. Um, you know what Russell said about that? He said, um, no. any understanding I have of myself, I owe to the kindness of friends. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it's his, as it were, his philosophy of mind seems in a way... Oh, I see. You know, not well, his philosophy of mind got in the way, I think. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so if, you're, if, you were a, if you were a Russellian biographer... Yeah. Do you, what, what do you think... You can't be a Russellian biographer. <laughs> right. Um, well, it's certain. I mean, you know, like with any other issue, Russell changed his mind, but at various times, given he adopted a, a philosophy of mind that would make it impossible to write biography. Because the idea is that we're trapped in a prison of ourselves. We can't get beyond that prison. I certainly can't, you know, get to your mind. Um, and so biography, biography and Russellian philosophy of mind just don't go hand in hand. I, I mean, actually, what you've got in Virginia Woolf's essays is something like that, that tension, where Virginia Woolf argues that what a biographer is trying to do is actually impossible. It looks impossible because she's adopted a philosophy of mind that is very close to Russell's. But it might look difficult even if you have Wittgenstein's conception of understanding other persons. I mean, 
Well, it's going to be difficult, whatever. Yeah, right, but, but, you know, I mean, some people, when they read Wittgenstein on other minds or other people, would, would put a lot of emphasis on the fact that it's very bodily, very incarnational. It's very, very much a matter of seeing mm. the feelings in their sure. face. Sure, Fine differences of behavior. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the kind of talk about yeah. judgment that you were quoting yeah. quite yeah. appositely is quite often exemplified in Wittgenstein's writing yeah. by a sort of face-to-face yeah. encounter with a sort of person. Yeah. And of course, you know, what you're dealing with is not just a kind of writing task in producing the biography, but very often it's documentary. Yeah. You know, and in yeah. that sense you might think it's rather harder. You, you've got to it's write harder, but it's not impossible. And, 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 and a great biographer like, like you know, Boswell, Bos- Boswell's biography of Johnson, the reason that's so great is that you do almost get a physical sense of Johnson. I mean, quotation is crucial here. The, 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 a large part of the art of biography is the use of quotation. This is what Elman does so wonderfully with Oscar Wilde and what Boswell does with Johnson. On almost every page of uh, Boswell's, Johnson, uh, Boswell's biography of Johnson, there's Johnson booming out from the page you know, in an almost physical, you know, tangible sort of way. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and, and Wittgenstein you know, said to Maurice Drury, look, you, 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 you don't pay enough attention to people's faces. <laughs> mm. um, you can't you can't do it facially in a biography, but you can certainly you can certainly get the voice, you know, that, and, and that's what Boswell does with Johnson, and that's what a great you know every great biography does. There's another issue though about providing something like a biography or the idea of biography, which perhaps uh, connects with Stephen your last book, which is about understanding what it is to be a person. Where part of what you want to say is that we, we mustn't think of what a person is on the model of, as it were, what a thing is, where you can just describe it with its properties and and so on. And there it is, we've now got the whole. There's always the sort of non-objective character of your own object. Mm -hmm. And and how does that, how does that, does that make a biography into some, when it sort of seems to present a whole, is there an illusion of personhood being presented in biography? Uh, there might be. Um, and I think that's to do with the integrity of, of the biographer. I mean, it's tempting, writing a biography, to pretend to claim or to present a greater coherence than there in fact was. Mm. And that's, that's a very uh, real temptation. Um, but a good biographer doesn't succumb to that temptation. Would it, would it be an opportunity for you if, if the subject of your biography was alive? Or would that actually be I, I don't think you can write a biography of somebody who's still alive. Okay, so they have to be dead. They have to be dead. <laughs> and that means you know the end of the story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, ideally, all your sources of information should also be dead. <laughs> What if they wrote an autobiography? <laughs> oh, well, Russell did. Mm. Yeah, and does, that, does, that, does that help? That must be uh, really helpful. <laughs> In all kinds of ways. You'd think, wouldn't you? Um, Russell's autobiography is fascinating, I think, because he wrote three volumes of autobiography, and they all differ. The first volume is, I think, one of the greatest things he ever wrote. It's a superb piece of literature. 
the second volume, which is all about him and Dora, he was hampered by worries about litigation. <laughs> so a lot of the interesting stuff is not there. The third volume I don't think he wrote at all. I think his, his uh, uh, fourth and final wife, Edith, wrote it. It looks like it was written from somebody uh, who's just gone through his appointment diary saying, I did this and then I did this. Um, uh, so they're very different books. But the first volume, he's doing something really... In- he's, he's trying desperately to convey what sort of person he is and what interests him and what motivated him. And it's, for, you know, he's, 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 he's a great writer of English prose himself. And it's, it's, it's a great work of literature, I think, the first volume of Russell's. Well, as, as, as we begin to let you off the hook, Ray, we can, we can segue this. To the, the, in between the space of the biography of the philosopher and some question about whether there's autobiography somehow inside philosophy itself at certain levels, um, in between those two would stand uh, autobiographies of philosophers. Um, are, there, are there many? Of, is, is Russell unusual for having written one? Or, uh, there there are several. I mean, we were talking about this bef- uh, you know, just before. Um, uh, my favourite autobiography of a philosopher is, is Collingwood's, which is, it's militantly internal. You, you don't get any sense at all of where he lived or you know, what his life was like in a physical sense. But with regard to getting some understanding of the way he thought, his autobiography is absolutely fascinating. Um, Russell's autobiography is very good. Other than that, most of the autobiographies of philosophers published in the last, uh, well, 100 years, let's say, uh, are not very good. Um, A.J. Ayres just gives the impression of sort of flippancy and superficiality. Quine's is extraordinarily... Uh, detached. Um, somebody once said to me about Quine's autobiography, it ought to have been called Portions of Space Time I Have Inhabited. Stephen, when you began to think about the relationship between philosophy and autobiography, did you take a point of departure from autobiographies of philosophers? Well, you could certainly take your point of departure from just observing the fact that there are a surprisingly large number of them when you start thinking about it. I mean, you know, you might think in terms of the 20th century and, mm. and I don't know, general proliferations of writing genres might partially explain why amongst all the biographies that get written and published there are philosophers who contribute to that. But, but you, you could think about, you know, the whole modern period in the West. You know, it starts with Descartes' meditations, you have Rousseau's confessions, you have Nietzsche, Eke Homo, um, and you could project that much further back if you're willing to be relatively broad-minded about it, if you think about Augustine's confessions. Um, you might want to ask yourself exactly what's going on when Plato and Socrates are kind of in, in dialogue in various kinds. And in that sense, you know, you might think, and this is something that I think Jim Conan brings out a bit when he's responding to some of your your thoughts about philosophy and biography, that there's a whole kind of tradition or dimension of the philosophical inheritance in the West that sees a really close connection between being a philosopher or doing philosophy and by virtue of being a philosopher and doing philosophy, engaging in a certain kind of autobiographical activity. So this is not so much that, as it were, it's part of your job description as a philosopher to make sure you've got your autobiography tucked away at some point in your, in your career, but more that there's something about a certain way of understanding the practice that makes the autobiographical a kind of part of what you're doing 
in every respect. Now, there are bound to be ways of understanding philosophy which would reject that idea altogether, and Quine would probably be the sort of perfect um, example of that. So what would you expect you know, from a, an autobiography or autobiography by Quine? Um, but I suppose the way I was thinking about it, and this maybe does connect back with, with what Rowe was talking about, is, is through Wittgenstein. Um, because one of the readers of Wittgenstein, who I take very seriously, is Stanley Cavell. And he's always thought about both Wittgenstein and Austin as philosophers whose method is inherently autobiographical. Okay, explain that. Well, okay, so that's a, I, there's a kind of general fact about philosophy that always causes a massive amount of trouble for philosophers, which is that philosophers don't have a subject matter. Right? That, that there isn't a kind of body of expertise that philosophers can point to as that on the basis of which they can claim a certain kind of authority in making the pronouncements that they make about whatever particular topics they they make pronouncements about. And yet, on the other hand, philosophers seem to have the belief about themselves that they have a kind of access to a sort of universal voice. You know, they can they can talk about matters of necessity, they can enter the realm of their priori, they can tell you what must necessarily be the case about any particular topic they are talking about. And then the question kind of really confronts you Namely, on what basis are you making these claims? Right? If it isn't that you know a great deal about some topic that somebody else knows a great deal less about, what is the source of that claim to authority? Now, one way you can go as a philosopher there is to emphasize the impersonal. So you say, well, look, the source of my authority as a philosopher is logic. Right? It's validity. It's the ability to discriminate good arguments from bad arguments and, and so on and so forth. And then, as it were, the aspect of the personal reduce it to zero, you know, because you take yourself to be speaking in a voice that's equally accessible to all. There's, there's nothing individual or particular about, about what you're doing. But there's also, you can also go in the opposite direction. You know, you can sort of say, well, actually, my authority derives from myself. It derives from the fact that the particular individual voice that I'm offering you is one which, as a matter of fact, you might find articulates thoughts that you've had or brings out ideas and connections that you're willing to acknowledge are there even though when the philosophers as it were making the remark it's a very, at the very least an open question whether or not um, how, do, how do you move then as a philosopher from I to we because one of the things about both the Wittgensteinian and Austinian method with ordinary language is about what we say yeah. Well, it depends on how you hear the we. I mean, you know, one way of hearing it is to say, look, because I'm a speaker of ordinary language, because I'm as competent in putting words together as anybody else, when I tell you that there's a grammatical connection between two concepts or two fields or two domains, then you're, go you're bound to acknowledge that I'm right. Because you, being an equally competent speaker, had a exactly the same degree of access to this realm of but that seems linguistic to be the impersonal that's the impersonal way of hearing the we you're sort of what you're doing is kind of re reporting from your own point of view on something that's universally kind of agreed or put in place before you get going as a philosopher the other way of, of, of taking it is to take take the use of the first person plural as advancing a kind of claim to community uh -huh. that you kind of what you're saying is in effect, 
to your interlocutor, are we a we? You know, this is what I think. This is the connection I see. This is what I take to be intelligible here, and this is where I take myself to be acknowledging the limits of the intelligible. Do you agree? Right? So the we is a kind of invitation to the other person in the dialogue to test whether or not, at least with respect to that particular claim, there really is a community. And to that extent, there's an overcoming of subjectivity, but it's by means of, as it were, relying on the subjectivity. And, and you can see that there's something like that in Descartes, right, in, in the context of the meditations. Because on the one hand, he's presenting it as if it's a conversation with himself. But on the other hand, he's presenting it to you as something for you to understand, for you to follow, indeed for you to perform for mm. yourself. Mm. And the only kind of authority that any of those conclusions that he reaches in the meditations have will depend upon whether or not when you go through the same process or procedure, you do turn out to agree with him. Okay, let's, say, let's hang on to that side of the, uh, the opposite side to the completely impersonal. So that when, mm. if, if you're focusing on that, then certainly something like yourself is involved. Um, why would that put some connection into autobiography? Well, um, you might think about it in this kind of way. Maybe I can help myself to, to at least a version of Ray's idea about the spirit in which you say something. What's involved on a kind of Wittgensteinian or Austinian story about understanding the speech acts of others is not just understanding the meanings of the words and the modes in which they're put together, but understanding the point or the purpose of uttering them. Right. Okay. Now that means you have to start thinking about the context in which the particular speech act is made. And that means you have to start asking yourself, not so much whether you understand what the words mean, as whether you understand the speaker's yeah. choice to say that particular thing to you in this particular context. And that means thinking about not just their reasons, but their motives, their interests, their desires. And in that sense, there's a kind of sense from, a, from this kind of reading of Wittgenstein and Austin, that the moment you say anything at all, you expose yourself yeah. in ways that you might not initially be entirely in control of, and in ways that might actually <coughs> be brought out much more explicitly by virtue of the responses of the interlocutors. But what you're doing, in effect, is staking yourself as an individual, not just on the intelligibility of the words that you're using, but on the intelligibility of using them in this way to that person at this point. So there's something, in a certain way, confessional, about what's going on. When you're on this kind of high wire and you don't have a body of knowledge and you're saying, look, here we're reaching the limits of sense. Right? Well, on what basis are you making that claim? You know, there's something very exposing about that. You're basically saying, look, here I am. Do you share a community with me in this respect? But what you have to do in order to legitimate that claim is in a certain sense start acquiring some self-knowledge of your own, right? I mean, you have to start understanding, well, why, why do you think that this is where sense runs out? Why do you think this connection matters and this connection doesn't matter? Why do you want to say we're talking about completely different language games in this context? On what basis are you drawing that distinction? Why is that taxonomy the right one to employ in this context? And the more you start reflecting on why you're committing yourself in these ways, the more you have to start, as it were, in a certain sense, 
tell a story that makes sense to you about why you ended up in the position of saying that thing to this person. What about the invitation that there might be at the beginning of Wittgenstein's later work in, in the philosophical investigations for, on, as it were, on the kind of approach into reading any text of philosophy that you, that you might pick up, that at the beginning of philosophical investigations there's a quotation from an autobiography. Is, for you, is that a kind of uh, signal? Is it, a, is, it, is it an invitation to think about that relationship? So Wittgenstein famously begins with a quotation from St. Augustine from the Confessions in which Augustine seems to be speaking in a voice which is not philosophical. Well, um, in a certain mood I think that's true about Augustine. I mean, what he's actually talking about in the section Wittgenstein quotes is what he's presenting as the recollection of how he began to learn to speak himself. Um, and doing it by sort of overhearing what the elders are up to. Not when they're trying to teach him, but when they're trying to get, get, get in the world and achieve the goals they want to achieve um, in that world. But of course, I mean, that section is part of a book which has all kinds of both philosophical and theological purposes motivating the placement of that particular discussion at that particular stage of the confession. So, so part of what he's doing theologically is presenting a portrait of a child who's, as it were, a perfect representative of original sin. Right? I mean, the, 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 the story about language is kind of immediately followed by a story about how furious one infant gets when another infant is allowed to go to the breast of the mother in, 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 in their in, place, in Augustine, in, Augustine, yeah. in Augustine's Confessions. Um, but also the whole of the, ten, the first ten books of the Confessions culminate in a kind of three-book philosophical analysis of notions like memory um, and so on. So the structure of the Confessions itself suggests a certain kind of internal relation between an autobiographical exercise and the philosopher finding himself in a position of being able to do philosophical work in a maximally productive, because maximally reflective and maximally self-knowing way. Now, of course, in Augustine's context, there's also a theological part <coughs> of that exercise or achievement of self, self-knowledge. Um, but Wittgenstein's choice of book there, it seems yeah. to me, is very much inviting you to at least think about the sense in which autobiography and philosophy go together. I mean, another way of, of thinking about it would be to say, you know, what are the conditions for the possibility of doing philosophy? Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a kind of very familiar philosophical question about almost anything else. <laughs> you know, what are the conditions for the possibility of doing history or biography or writing an autobiography or Same any object. other any other human achievement or activity that you might care to name. And that means that there's a kind of necessity built into the philosopher's claiming of authority to be willing to ask that question about himself. So, what are the conditions for the possibility of philosophy? Now, there are lots of possible answers to that, but one obvious answer is they have to be philosophers. (laughs) So, So one question might be, you know, what attracts you to philosophy in the first place? I mean, you know, Ray was starting his remarks about doing philosophical biography 
by explaining how his philosophical interests took him in a certain direction towards an interest in certain people and, a, and the spirit of their work and then a certain understanding of how one might go about improving that understanding of their work. Um, it seems to me that there's a certain sense in which part of being as transparent or authentic as you can be as a philosopher is to be as transparent and authentic as you can be to yourself about why doing this kind of philosophy in this kind of way at this particular point in this intellectual, historical, cultural context, why why is it that that's the stance you're taking out, that's the stake that you're... And one thing you can draw on there in that point is to think about the, at a certain point, the inseparability of your life from your work, that you don't have the kind of outside the work autobiographical life and then this completely other thing which is doing philosophy. And maybe that's another thing that's also in Heidegger's line that I talked about earlier. He, he was born, he thought, he died. The idea of separating the thought from the life would be a kind of um, distortion of what was actually going on when one's doing philosophy. That is a certain kind of life. I mean, I don't know... There's, there's one thing that's yeah. troubling me about this way of yeah. putting it, is, is that it makes it sound as if all philosophy is inescapably and all philosophy equally autobiographical. Is that, is that your view? Well, um, no. No, I mean, uh, you know, if you're, if you're doing Quinean um, philosophy of logic or um, Williamsonian metaphysics, then I don't think that is true. And that's why I, I was trying to suggest that in a certain way there's a, there's a structural tension in the position a philosopher occupies <coughs> qua philosopher that is such that you can respond to it in, in a certain way in two very, very different ways. You know, one is to kind of emphasize the distinction between life and work, to go for the impersonally impersonal. And then, of course, you're bound to think that good philosophy requires that you remove yourself as far as possible from the process and the procedure and the exercise. And then all kinds of things follow. I mean, you know, that's the kind of conception of philosophy that might... But, but I, I took you to be arguing that it's of the nature of philosophy that you can't remove yourself in that way. No, I was, I was taking it that it's of the nature of one response to that structural oh, okay. tension, that you go in the opposite direction, that mm. you, you stake it all not on removing yourself, but on, as it were, having nothing but yourself to work with, yeah. in a certain way. But then that, that, might, that might bring somebody who took that kind of view want to make a charge against the one who thinks that the authority derives from something outside themselves, from logic itself or from necessities in the world or whatever it is. And, th and there may be claims then coming in from that kind of philosopher about, for example, authenticity, that there may be a charge against that other kind of philosopher, that this isn't authentic. Is, is, that, is that something that might now devolve from that kind of position in philosophy, how, how, what, what would be the critique of the, the one who took the other stance when you take the one that says all you've got is yourself? I'm not, I don't think I would be inclined <coughs> no. to go quite that far. I mean, not, certainly not to say that it follows from the fact that you respond to this structural bind by heading towards, let's say, logic or the universal voice of reason or the study of valid inference, that there's something inauthentic in that, simply by virtue of being the choice you make. There may be a question that you might couch in terms of authenticity if you then ask that person 
what the basis for that choice is, you know, or how how you understand your own relationship to that choice, and and therefore your relationship to other people who might have chosen differently in this respect. I mean, you know, if it's also a distinctive characteristic of being a philosopher that philosophers can't even agree about what philosophy is, is right, then you might think there's something inauthentic about saying, not just that's the way I'm going to go, but that's just the way one goes if right. one's a philosopher. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just say, but look, philosophy just has to be about validity, right? If you exclude the idea that that itself might be contested, or that the conditions for the possibility of going that way might themselves be worth a certain amount of philosophical reflection, then I'd be more inclined to see that there's that there's a problem. Um, but I don't think I'd want to say, and I certainly don't think anything in Wittgenstein or Austin would entail that you have to say, look, responding to the tension that way is ipso facto problematic. Right. Well, let me, last time back to Heidegger then, mm-hmm. with, with this one, because Heidegger in his writings, thematizes authenticity as a possible way of being for a human being. But with, there's all sorts of ways of being, but one of them would be doing things in a way which is authentic and inauthentic by contrast. And of course then that becomes a reflexive point about yourself as a, as a writer of philosophy, whether a condition of possibility for being a philosopher would include something like authenticity in your own being a philosopher, or... Uh, being capable of being a philosopher would, would involve issues around authenticity. Is this a similar kind of issue to the one you were talking about earlier about being willing to speak from yourself or is it a different idea? I think, I think there's a connection. I mean, I think the idea of authenticity that Heidegger is using in Being and Time mm. is essentially one which turns on the, a distinction he draws between your life being yours or your life being not yours. Mm-hmm. He talks about the mindless of, yeah. of human existence. And, and I take that to be a universal structure of human existence for, for Heidegger. That means it's going to apply across the board. You're always going to be able to evaluate another and yourself, whatever you happen to be doing, whatever commitments you happen to have taken on, in terms of whether or not you are holding yourself accountable for those commitments. That's the way I'd, I'd be yeah. inclined to, to cash out that notion of authenticity. So, so then the issue of, as it were, speaking would connect with that in the, in the following way, that um, are you holding yourself accountable for both what you say, how you say it, when you say it, to whom you say it, or aren't you? Right, right. Yeah? Now that's not necessarily a control on what you say, right? But it is a control on your willingness to hold yourself accountable, to be able to give reasons for, to, uh, to explain, to give some kind of story that makes sense of your decision to say that to that particular other. Right. Yeah. Ray, Ray, just finally come back then full circle to your Weinegger line, mm. where there was a deep connection between with the, the moral condition of the philosopher and their engagement with philosophical questions. Is that, is that, I'm not sure actually if that's the best way of putting it. Perhaps, perhaps you could bring us back though to, to the Weininger thought. Okay, I mean, the Weininger thought 
through Wittgenstein, as it were. Well, the Weinegger thought as a as a as a key to understanding yeah. Wittgenstein is 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 this that one has the feeling with Wittgenstein that his life and work are somehow deeply and inextricably uh, entwined with, it, with one another. And I think with that quote about logic and ethics being two parts of a single duty, you, 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 you begin to understand why Wittgenstein lived the kind of life he did. One, one, one thing about Wittgenstein that's very unusual, I think, is he pared his life down. He, he never owned a house. He never got married. He had as few possessions as he, he didn't even have many books. He, his, his room at college was bare. Most of his rooms were bare. He's, um, he had as few things to distract him as possible from just two tasks. One being to live decently and the other being to think clearly. And for Wittgenstein, I think, his whole life was centred on those two things. Right, OK. Wow. Uh, so we've uh, <coughs> managed to get through part one and part two which means that it's up to you now to get us part through part three. Um, there's an opportunity for you to ask questions or short contributions as you, as you please, and we'll uh, start there. Yes, thank you. Speak up, though, because the people at the back will yes. find it very hard. Um, I didn't know you were going to talk about Wittgenstein today, but I'm very, very glad to, to listen to your very interesting talk. And you are talking very slowly for me to understand. <laughs> <laughs> it's just I think slowly. <laughs> very little I know about him, but he's di- he died young. And so therefore there, is, there isn't much mature life uh, to, go, to go about. Uh, he gave all his money. He was attracted to Catholicism. Um, but what disturbed me here today, it's a life, in my opinion, of bad faith, like not authentic life. You, you were talking about authenticity. I don't really know how to... I attempt to explain what I'm trying to think. Well, very it's, briefly, if you don't Yeah, mind. very, very briefly. Is He admired the writing of uh, Otto Weiniger. But Otto Weiniger uh, detested women. That's okay. I can do it without <laughs> But he, but he okay. didn't like Jews, and he didn't like homosexuals. Uh, he was both homosexual and... And, and Jewish, whether he likes it or not, it's, it's a fact. Yeah. So how could he find a sense of identity and self-admiring a person that detested him? Okay, that's good. Hold it there. Right. Okay. I think the key here is a, a letter that Wittgenstein wrote to G.E. Moore. Wittgenstein recommended to Moore that he read Weininger's Sex and Character. And I, we don't have... Uh, the letter that Moore wrote in response, but we do know from Wittgenstein's reply that Moore must have said something like, what are you doing recommending this crazy book to me? Uh, Because what Wittgenstein said to Moore is, yes, I can quite understand that you don't admire Weinegger. He said, roughly, if you put a negation sign, you know that in logic you have that negation sign meaning not. He said, roughly speaking, if you put a negation sign in front of the whole book, it expresses an important truth. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Uh, over here. Uh, Yeah. Uh, two quick uh, questions. Uh, the first is William James, uh, I think, quite poignantly said that one of the reasons he was attracted to pragmatism was that he was rubbish at mathematics. <laughs> and I, I wondered how much you thought that was relevant to other philosophers and how they got their interest in their certain fields. Uh, and the second one is uh, 
Uh, we've been speaking today about famous philosophers who've been writing biographies about. Where do you stand about uh, the biographer as the resurrectionist, almost, of lost philosophers that we once knew a lot about, but now we don't know so much about? And maybe that's an important role for biography and philosophy as well. Can you think of any examples? Well, S.J. Schiller is one that I've okay. been working on, uh, who, who very much is linked to his biography, because one of the reasons he's forgotten is because most people thought he was a bit of a bastard, and they didn't like him on a personal level. We take it for granted, it feels, that these greats of philosophers were always seen as the greats. But there's a lot of philosophers in our lifetime were seen as greats, and now forgotten. And I think that could be an important role for a biographer to resurrect forgotten philosophers, in a way even more useful than ones we know a lot about. I can imagine going to a publisher and saying, I want to write a book about a forgotten philosopher. <laughs> I don't think I'd get much of an advance for it. Uh, I mean, I think, I think it is a practically impossible task, actually, to revive an interest in a forgotten philosopher. Um, I mean, you mentioned Schiller, but has it really worked? I mean, has there been a Schiller revival? Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what I mean. <laughs> With regard to pragmatism, well, of course, um, I can think of at least one example of somebody who's very good at mathematics who was also a pragmatist, Frank Ramsey. Um, can I tell a William yeah, James story? Yeah. Uh, William James. I'm sorry, this is only tangentially related, but I just can't resist it because it's a lovely story. Russell, when he went to America for the first time, he, the man he most wanted to meet was William James, and he wrote to William James and, and uh, said he really wanted to come and see him. William James replied saying, uh, dear, dear, dear Mr. Russell, um, I would very much like to, to, to meet you. And then as it were, on second thoughts, he crossed out the word very. But he, <laughs> <laughs> but he's, he sent the letter anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, uh, Stephen. Uh, one there is in Robert. Yeah, please. No, no, I just wanted to ask you, um, I suppose maybe a, a special case of the, the question of authenticity um, that I mean, it seems to me this question of the life and the work of a philosopher is perhaps particularly um, relevant when we talk about moral philosophers. Mm. And the question I suppose I have is, to what extent do you think it's possible for a philosopher to be a good moral philosopher if he or she doesn't practice what he preaches? Uh, yeah, good question. <laughs> Well, yeah, okay. Um, quite, quite a lot of modern moral philosophy doesn't get to the point of preaching anything, which may be to its detriment. But I think, you know, if you, if you rounded up a standard issue sort of regiment of moral philosophers, at least half of them would be working on the logic of normative concepts and the logic of practical rationality and wouldn't think preaching had got anything whatever to do with with what they were doing. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong about that. You know, there's a perfectly legitimate domain of philosophical and conceptual analysis to be done there. But suppose we stick with the preachers. I mean, what I, I've always found it very strange that people think that uh, a kind of, a bit of moral insight or guidance or some sort of principled um, proposal about how you should live your life is somehow vitiated or subverted by the fact that the person concerned doesn't actually put it into practice. I mean, it seems to me much more likely to be the other way around, that, that, that as it were, it's precisely because you know your own flaws so well that you're actually in a really good position to point out 
exactly what's wrong with that flaw and what you should do to handle it, handle it better. Um, I, I, would, I would kind of expect almost that philosophers who are really good at analysing and identifying a problem, a difficulty in moral life, are almost bound to be the people who find themselves completely disabled by it. Oh, I think that's true. On the other, I, I mean, I, and again, I think it would vary from case to case, and I think what you've described is, is, can happen. On the other hand, I think it would be perfectly reasonable for somebody to look at the disastrous marriages that Bertrand Russell had before they decided to take his advice on how to um, you know, lead a good married life in marriage and morals. I suppose that, that's got to be true. I suppose the question is how far that, that is qualified by the fact that he's a philosopher as opposed to just somebody who's offering you moral guidance. Would it be, did, you, did, did you want specific weight to fall on the fact that these people were philosophers? And that subset of the hypocrisy you were identifying? Does that make it worse? or? Perhaps not, but but I but well I think perhaps but I, I would say perhaps yes because I think that what one expects of philosophers is an ability to examine their arguments more carefully than one would expect of ordinary preachers, say well this class of preachers, and I think that while I would agree with you that that we're all you know none of us lives up to our highest ideals and that the fact that a philosopher doesn't live up to his highest ideals doesn't necessarily mean that those ideals are invalid. I think that one would then expect or hope that the good philosopher would then appreciate the dissonance between his life and what he is preaching and then try and work out whether there is therefore something wrong either with his life or with his ideas. Well, I, th- I mean, maybe just two quick thoughts about that. I mean, one is that the problem of not practicing what you preach is not going to show up by analysing the logic of your arguments that deliver the preaching, right? There's a, there's a whole separate set of issues involved when you start asking yourself, well, why am I not doing what my conclusions tell me I should be, should be doing? So that would be one, um, one problem there. The, the, the other problem really... <laughs> Is that is this question of authority? You know, why on earth do we think that a moral philosopher is better equipped to give us moral guidance about a moral difficulty than any other reflective human being? You know, the, the worry I would have about this is the idea that you know a philosopher puts a, a sign up above his door saying, you know, come here for moral guidance. That would be problematic, but it would be problematic because he'd be trading on the idea that philosophical acuity and ethical insight are the same thing in that kind of in that model this is something like the flip side yeah. of the Weininger Wittgenstein idea it seems I, 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 I mean broadening it beyond moral philosophy it seems to me you know, sometimes inescapable that one's admiration or disapproval of a philosopher and of a person are going to coincide and I, I'm, I'm thinking about William James William James, you probably know this, is, 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 is the philosopher mentioned most often in Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations. Um, you might expect it to be Russell or Frege, but it's actually William James. And when Wittgenstein was talking to his friend Drury about why he admired William James so much, he said, William James was a great human being. That's what makes him a great philosopher. 
Well, let's, let's turn this around just before we move on. There's the worry of hypocrisy. It's whether they practice what they preach. But another name that emerged, again, was Heidegger. It was whether he was uh, actually preaching what he practiced. Because uh, Heidegger, famously, for those who don't know, was a Nazi during the 1930s. And, and so there's a, a question whether being in time written in the late 1920s was, as it were, in itself already contaminated with the kind of politics that was later to be expressed in, in his life. And, and I don't know, you know whether... Well, you could, you, know, you could certainly suspect an additional motive on his part for getting us to separate the life and the work. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. no, it's Heidegger who says Aristotle was born, he thought, he died. Uh-huh. He'd probably be quite pleased if his uh-huh. biography uh-huh. Took, that short. Took, that, took that form. Very good. Um, but I, I mean, the, the, you've got to be careful here. I mean, it seems to me that there are two equal and opposite errors, right? One is, one is to think the life is one thing and the work is something else never the twain shall meet, right? But there would also be a, an equal and opposite difficulty in saying, look, you just read off evaluative judgments about the work from evaluative judgments about the life. It has to be more complex than that, and that's part of what makes a good biography an interesting exercise, um, not just in the writing, but in the understanding that's required to, to bring it about, because it's never that simple. Yeah. It's the complexities that yeah. provide the insight. Absolutely. We've got too many hands going up, but I'm, I'm going to take three. I'm not going to take three in a row, but I'm going to tell you that it's one, two, three. So if you go now. Okay. Yeah. Um, I want to pick up on something um, definitely said about the chilling of Melbourne. You'll be famous. Um, you can think back to Yusuf being Smith because he was seen as quote, a bit of a bastard. So do you think that considering well, I, I tend to think you know, before, that there is a big link between the person that philosopher is and their philosophy and, the, and, and what that philosophy has to sort of contribute to a reader, do you think that people are then valid in, in dismissing the philosopher's arguments on the basis that they don't like the person? For example, it seems like um, the Feinberger is clearly homophobic and, and sexist, so, yeah, and most people have dismissed the well, that's a special case because it's not just that you've got a homophobe and a misogynist writing a book. The book is an expression of his homophobia and his misogyny. So, so that's a special case. But um, I don't know. Um, I, 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 I think I would draw the line at saying that it... it would be valid to dismiss an argument because the person putting forward the argument is a repellent human being. That surely is a step too far. Okay, and uh, yeah. Thank you. Two quick questions for Stephen, please. Um, I was wondering how you would distinguish philosophy philosophy from Dinkley's philosophy of life. Um, and the second one is whether you can actually. Uh, a trigger uh, towards this kind of philosophy throughout the history of philosophy. So if there is a, a particular moment in the history of philosophy that you would see philosophy being more autobiographical. I don't think I know enough about Diltai to answer your first question. Let me just take the second one and um, say something about that. I mean, one, one thought one might have about 
the proposal, which is not a very well worked out one, that there's an autobiographical dimension to philosophy, might be that that's a, a distinctively modern, well, it, maybe not a distinctively modern development, but something that's intensified, and certainly did intensify in the early modern period. And you might want to ask yourself questions about that. I mean, if, if the kind of little picture I was sketching about um, attention which might lead you either to entirely discount the self or entirely foreground it is right, then, then that would be an unsurprising development in early modern philosophy in Western Europe. And that's why Descartes would be an interesting example to look at. Because if you're looking at a, a situation in which someone's trying to reground the whole intellectual enterprise from scratch. Right? In other words, dis discounting arguments that depend upon the transmission mechanisms of a tradition, whether it's religious or political or moral, and simply saying, look, what bits of what I claim to know can I authenticate without taking somebody else's word for it? Then you're bound to, as it were, put yourself and the resources that are available to you internally right in the center of the picture. And that's why the meditations, or one of the reasons why the meditations takes the form it does. And the moment someone, as it were, tries to re-found the philosophical tradition in that particular way, a lot of other philosophers coming after him are going to have to address or respond to that particular understanding of the situation philosophy finds itself in. And then you're going to find yourself in a very complex conversation that has particular historical, cultural, intellectual roots or triggers, as you might put it, but will then get taken up in all kinds of complicated ways in a variety of intellectual contexts, and then it's going to become almost impossible to separate out the triggers. You're going to have to start taking some of the contributions to that conversation in their own terms rather than always taking it back to that particular historical trigger. Good. Okay. Yes, one here, and then we'll have a oh, point out three more. I was just wondering about how Ray's work, which I enormously respect from Wittgenstein, is a work of biography, but to what extent is it also a work of philosophy? Just to think that a moment, there was a moment with Derrida towards the end of his life, engages very directly with the Heidegger quote. And he says, and he frames it in a different way, he says, Heidegger's vision has in some way been dominant, the idea that the, and I'm putting it not just the autobiographical, but the personal. What's the difference between the autobiographical and the personal and the framing of the I voice? Derrida said, no, I'm sorry, Derrida said that he never used I right mm. the way through. Mm. It was only at the funeral of Levinas that he had a relationship with that Levinas that made it in some way inescapable for him to say I, to speak I for his friend. Now in that context, and that marked in some way a very significant shift in Derrida's work because he was trying then to understand what is it about the tradition of Western philosophy, despite the tension that Stephen has drawn out, which I think is a really helpful tension, that the notion of the I has somehow been banished or it's extremely difficult to articulate. And in some way, the Wittgenstein work isn't simply autobiographical. It does bring into relationship or a very different way of thinking the relationship of doing philosophy and living one's life. 
So I was struck and surprised by Stephen's response, too quick, I thought, the notion of preaching. I think that doesn't get it. I think that does, in some way, a disservice. It was exactly what I learned years ago in terms of the difference between kind of morals and ethics, or we think about the language of philosophy, but we, or ethics or morality, but we don't think about how people should live or what they should do. So, in that context, how do we think about the role of the personal or the engaging with the personal when we're talking about a sense of responsibility and Wittgenstein's recognition that to think clearly, in some way we have to live clearly, yeah. which was yeah. partly the way that he did it understand yeah. Wittgenstein. Um, that was what was significant in the mind before Wittgenstein. And you're absolutely right that that was, you know, that that's a key central part of that book uh, you know that's what I was trying to get across the difficulty though is that yeah that's absolutely you, you, you put your finger on, on what I was trying to do in, in my biography of, of, of Wittgenstein the difficulty is I, I, I wouldn't want to generalise that into a, you know, a general view that this is the right way to do philosophy it seemed to me that in, in Wittgenstein's case it's helpful to understand his philosophy, to understand him. Um, but I wouldn't want to you know, try and articulate and defend that as a general claim. Uh, with regard to Derrida, um, he and I took part in a panel discussion on biography in the late 90s in, in New York. Um, and he at that time was arguing quite strongly against biography. His, the view that he was expressing on, on that occasion was that, and, and not just biography, the attempt to understand somebody else, he, he, he put it like this, that to try and understand somebody is to do violence to them. Which I think is, 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 is a view that's inspired by, if not taken from, Levinas. Um, and and he, was, he was arguing that quite strongly and quite vehemently on, on that occasion. Um, I think the idea there in Levinas is certainly that um, the idea of an adequate representation of, of a subject is always a, a certain kind of violence because they escape that sort of objectification. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, he, came to, he came to question that view. What was interesting is the way that he came to question. I, I was very interested in that, and particularly with regard to Levinas. It's a shift from the first position to the second. So it's, it's actually a shift from someone who was convinced that to understand another person was to do violence to a recognition that he needed, and in some ways it started the engagement with his own life, you know, that he had to write out of his own life in order to mm. do the philosophical work that was needed in order to speak the eye. Yeah. So Derrida recognizes how hard it is. Yeah. It isn't this it's kind of personal anecdote it's easy. Yeah. He recognizes in the way that Wittgenstein recognizes only towards the very end the amount of work, both emotional and other kinds of moral work right. needed in order to write clearly. And how striking and poignant it should be, you know, the funeral of Levinas. Yeah. But I think it's maybe worth saying that, that, that that conception of an ethical dimension to philosophical 
writing and speech is completely different from the idea of moral philosophy as a kind of subset of the philosophical enterprise. You know, the kind of thing that the, the one branch of the subject where you look at moral concepts and the logic of moral concepts. That was the context for the preaching yeah. point. And, that, and that's where the worry comes about preaching and practicing, I think. The, 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 the Weininger idea of logic and ethics kind of going together, you know, thinking clearly and being a decent person, that generates a conception of the ethical as something that's not a branch of philosophy, but something absolutely pervasive in everything. For Wittgenstein, very, very important it's not. Right, and, and, and you know, the later Wittgenstein on Cavell's reading, which was the one I was kind of helping myself to in what I said about autobiographical, Auto, the autobiographical depends upon an idea of the ethical as a dimension of philosophy, not a branch not of a it. topic in it. Yeah. There's a question at the front here, and then we'll have to see where we're up to. Sorry. Uh, the, actually, uh, the two of you. Sorry. So, <laughs> you go first, and then you. Um, a personal question, which is permissible from the discussion on biography and autobiography to Ray Mutton, and that is um, in the Oppenheimer biography, you had to deal with a scientist. You could deal with all his intellectual thinking. Did you find it difficult to deal with his to deal with his scientific thinking? And would you write another biography of a scientist, or will you stick to philosophy? Uh, I did find it difficult, but I also found it fascinating. Uh, and I had I had um, a lot of help from a friend of mine who is a physicist and wrote a textbook on particle physics. And he took, you know, he held my hand and he gave me homework, as it were, and I, I, I did my homework and I, you know, I spent actually quite a lot of time trying to understand quantum mechanics, trying to understand Oppenheimer's work on mesons, trying to understand his work on gravitational collapse. And I found it inexhaustibly interesting. Um, Were you able to explain it well? Because my wife, who's read it, says she was a bit disappointed with your scientific... <laughs> oh, the what, the not deep enough, or...? I'm not sure. I haven't read that. Um, I've had a variety of responses. I, I mean, phys physicists on the whole have, have liked it because they quite like the fact that there's a bit of physics in the in the book at all. Um, my publisher confessed to skipping those bits. Um, um, and, and, yeah, no, it, it, is your wife a scientist? She spends her time reading science. Right, right. Well, it, you know, it could, could be that it's not deep enough. Uh, but it also could be that if I made it any deeper, I wouldn't find any readers. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I think it's the last question down here. Yes. Uh, you, you write that your, uh, your talk is about uh, is there a dimension of philosophical thought that is itself autobiographical? And you looked at a lot of areas of that, but the one you just didn't look at at all is what philosophers give away about themselves uh, psychologically if not psychoanalytically you know, you could even, um, I would have thought that there was an enormous amount to be said on that that a lot of philosophers um, uh, you can deduce from their philosophy the kind of person they must be that doesn't always work of course but it does work for instance I think it works for Rousseau, it works for Nietzsche it works for Buber, it works for Sartre it works for Schopenhauer and it works for Wittgenstein all of, all of those people uh, are writing in a way which makes it not too difficult for one to venture uh, a, an autobiographical element in the kind of personality that they were you haven't talked about that at all well um, thank you yeah, I mean, I, I'm 
I think what you're suggesting, depending depending on how you formulate, you were you were moving from um, inference to ventures. I mean, I'd be happier with the idea of venturing than than the idea of inferring. I mean, I agree with you. I agree with you. It seems to me part of part of the implication of this way of understanding Wittgenstein and Austin, leaving people like Nietzsche and Heidegger out of it for the moment, is that people betray more of themselves in every word they utter than they might initially think. And philosophers are no more immune to that kind of inadvertently confessional aspect than any other language user. But that's partly because that's the nature of language use, it seems to me. In order to say that there's there's any kind of more heightened version of that form of self-exposure or self-betrayal in specifically philosophical writing. I don't know how one would argue that necessarily, but it may be that all you need is the idea that anyone who says anything, who puts words together and puts them out there for someone to um, respond to in a variety of ways, most of them usually critical, is bound to give away more of themselves than they thought they were giving, giving away. And I don't think you necessarily need psychoanalysis to, to prove that, but it would be a perfectly legitimate model of interpretation, I think. I don't think philosophers are any more immune to that kind of mode of biographical understanding. I don't know. Do, do you think that would count as biographical understanding or merely an understanding of the philosopher as a person? In a sense, autobiographical, they're saying something about themselves without yeah. necessarily... Just, and so many of the examples that you gave, I don't know whether the philosophers were themselves conscious of thinking in that sort of way. Mm. And uh, yours are entirely a different world of uh, approach to the one that I've been suggesting here. Okay, well, I'm afraid uh, we've run out of time. And I just thought you'd like to know um, what will happen when uh, people ask you what you did tonight. It's uh, we began, we talked, and we finished. <laughs>